Okay, we're back. Well, technically, it's a week later, and I'm here with John O'Malley again, and we're gonna go really in depth with this story. Um, well, John, <laughs> how, how's thanks, Matthew? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, how's your day going, man? How's uh, how's your week been? It's been great. It's been great. You know, the weather is good. As you know, I play violin in the park, so that's been going very, very well. And uh, you and I just kind of skated across town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most kids would actually, well, I, say, I say kids, they're not kids anymore. Most adults that were skate fans would probably dream of that. John O'Malley told me on a bicycle. Ah. Right, right, right. I towed you across town. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that worked because you're a good skater. I'm all right. I'm okay. I, I can I can push a board. That's as far as I can say. I don't, I don't know if I'm that good, but um, we're gonna get into some questions and some life story questions. Uh, like last week, we pretty much covered when did you start skating. But what was it like growing up in Long Island, New York City, and just that experience? Oh, well, being you know, being on Long Island in the '60s and and growing up in the '50s and '60s. Um, it was great. It was, uh, you know, it was very leave it to beaver. You know, dad worked, mom stayed home and we lived on a cul-de-sac and it was easy for me to practice skateboarding. There was no traffic. And I, so I took to it and I liked it and I had a place to do it. And then they opened, they, uh, they paved paths through the park, um, right down the block from where I lived. So it, we began to skate there. So we had these beautiful new asphalt paths going through the, the not the woods, but the, the park and stuff like that. So I kind of grew up always skating in a park-like situation and kind of mm-hmm. having the expectation of a certain amount of aesthetics to the thing as opposed to just going out to the, into the street and whatever. Yeah, just randomly going about. Um, just what... Like, was there any crews at the time? Was there people, like, in Yeah, of course, yeah. So, the kids that I came up with, you know, it's like, it's like it always is. The kids that I came up with, uh, they started skateboarding and surfing. We all started, and so we had a crew that of guys that, uh, and, and a girl or two that made our crew up, yeah. Yeah, and we're still friends to this day. Nice. Yeah. That's it's kind of different. Like, most people don't stay friends from... Because, you know, the average cutoff point of your friends is 26. They say in psychology, it's like, once you reach the age of 26, you start to lose friends from your childhood. Uh, oh, well, right. But these have stayed. My surf friends have stayed. And they all... We all still have maintained um, the surf life. I'm more of a guy with a surfboard now than a surfer. But... Um, <laughs> but the communities is... The community is intact. So, out of all those guys that you guys and girls that you grew up with, who like how did they separate the good and the bad? Like, how did you realize that you was a unique? I should say, how did you realize you was uniquely gifted versus others? Over. Oh, um, I always thought that the crew that I came up with were really extraordinary people, and um, but then I always thought, but then I felt. Well, everybody must think that about their friends. But it turns out that they all were. 
um, out, of the, out of the guys that I first moved to California with, there was a couple, Ding and Judy, and um, John Tully, and myself. And out of that household uh, came, you know, I started building skate parks. John Tully became one of the biggest architects in California. He, he became, he had one of the biggest architectural firms in California. And Ding and Judy, Judy has gone on to manage uh, systems of hospitals up and down the West Coast. Wow. So, so I was right. You know, I felt like, you know, I know everybody likes their friends, but I think these, this crew is, that they're different, and they are. Yeah, that's uniquely special. You don't get friends like that, where you just know, like... It just seemed like it. It's magical, almost. Yeah, no, I was lucky, yeah. Yeah. And then... then mm-hmm. it... oh, pause that. Okay. Now, I think I mentioned that our house was right next to Jack Graham's. Did I mention that in the first? Um, no, I don't think you mentioned it in the first part. Well, that, that's how I met my partner, Jack. We had moved in to this house, and there was a, uh, a, phone, a phone. The phone line was plugged into the wall and leading to the house next door. So we followed the phone line. You know, oh, how- Jack stole your phone line? No, it was his phone line, but they hadn't had a chance to move it. But he still had to do business, so he just got a really long cord. This was at a time when, you know, like phone cord, it's not, you know, this was like a big deal. Like, you had to have the phone company come, the phone company, the phone belonged to them and stuff like that. Okay. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's how we met him. We followed the phone cord, and he's like, oh, sorry about that. The nicest guy in the world, and also... You know, a, an inventor and a technical, you know, a mechanical genius, a wizard. Right. Um, and one day Jack saw on the news that skaters were getting thrown out of a tier park in San Diego. And um, he came over and he said he, he thought that if we made a place to go skate for skateboarders, that they would come and they would pay to enter. But how did that relationship build that you guys went from, hey, dude, uh, the cord to, right? you want to help me build some skate parks? Well, we, right. So, so some good amount of time had gone by, perhaps over a year. And um, so he became quite friendly with our household. And we were industrious. And I think he liked that. And we had these old trucks. And he's a mechanical genius. So he was instrumental in us keeping those old trucks running very, very well. Oh. And um, and we were on the corner, and he was right next door, so we had kind of like a little, a little compound, sort of, okay. between the two households. And um, Jack, after seeing, you know, this uh, bit on TV about the kids being thrown out of the tier park, he asked around. He, wanted, he, he did his research. He said, who's the best skateboarder around? And all my friends, and so he asked all the surfers he knows, which is simply all the guys in our house, and they all told him the same thing. John is. Right, but then you had these other guys, yeah, Greg Weaver. Right, right, right. So, he, you know, he comes over and says, you know, I heard you're the best skateboarder around. And I'm like, well, yeah. And, but I don't realize that in Encinitas, we're right around the corner from Greg Weaver and Bruce Logan and stuff like that. So I'm kind of blissfully 
unaware of that. Right. But that's how it started. And, uh, and in truth, I'm out of that little pool of us. I guess I am the most qualified to, to co-design skate parks. Yeah, I mean, you even, like, there's right on Rue Record. Eighth in like at times she was eighth in the world like that's qualifying what, like what is eighth in the world what's um that? at times when he was on Cena Hill he was one of the eighth in the world one of the eighth best skaters in the world oh oh okay yeah. oh a uh, slalom racers yeah that's probably my best time was uh, well, my best placing was probably either a six or probably a six or something I mean that and Lacosta but uh major no I was a good I was a good racer for a while. And I still love slalom racing. I follow it and I support it. Yeah, it's a fun little sport. I, was, I just got into it. I just picked it up, just learned how to do it. If, you, if you're if you a push guy or a street guy, sl- slalom racing is going to be a lot of fun. Slalom is very fun. It's the whole de- diving in and out. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, yeah. A big, I'm a big fan of slalom racing. Yeah. Um, and so we began to... Quickly... Assemble... The, the tools that we needed to start designing skate parks. And for Jack, that was doing all the engineering. So Jack could correctly predict um, how fast skaters were going to be going. Right, but he a, wasn't a physicist. Like he... N- n- no, no. A lot of this work is already done. Right. A lot of this work is for, um, you know, the friction coefficient for wheels is already calculated and written down in, in, in books... And um, so we started off with something as, as similar as we could, and then we adjusted the uh, equation. What was the original top speed that you guys figured out? Like, was the point where they get, where it's safe? Well, you know, we're talking about skate parks, so we're not really, you're not going fast. You're only going 10 or 15 miles an hour, okay. perhaps. So, um, but it's really uh, more of the uh, the g-forces in the turns and how much speed you can burn off um in bank turns hmm. and um yeah, so so pause that for a second go ahead john so we're looking at a a, a, um, a film clip of scott williams riding one of the snake runs at uh, concrete wave and what you don't realize is how well Scott's um, speed is controlled by the uh, by the bank turns. You know, we're we're dealing with a you know like a great elevation difference, probably perhaps twenty feet, and I mean that is a potential you know twenty five miles an hour. But my partner Jack knew exactly how fast you'd be going going into the the first bank turn coming out of it, going into the next bank turn, and, and, and the speed that you would maintain finishing the run. So regardless of those freak anomaly people who just break records? I'm sorry? Those are freak anomaly people who just like, all right, here goes Jack Equation, let's just go oh, destroy it. The people, folks who put up skate parks without knowing how fast... You know the riders would be going on on their on their terrain. None of those skate parks worked. All none of the early skate parks uh, really worked. Um, Reseda was just a beautiful skate park, wonderfully done. But 
they didn't have the kind of speed that warranted those great bank turns that they put in. Um, that place in, in in Florida, that was totally just, they just threw a, a bunch of concrete. Um, and the list goes on and on. So how um, did you guys know that this was going to work based on just the math alone or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, based on the math alone. Wow, that's like um, space, like how they do space flight. Like, look, guys, we're gonna we're gonna send you into orbit, and uh, we've never done this before. <laughs> you might get hurt. Well, Jack worked out the formulas, and I learned how to use them, so I could do it as well. Okay. But um, so anyway, that's how we started, and um, the original plan was it would be real mom, mom and pop. You know, we would man it on alternate weekends and go he would go fishing and i would go surfing okay. and but that never happened even before we opened up so what changed that whole um the demand for skate parks just oh. went through the roof and uh, we were the only people who did it <laughs> so that's we, sick so we had a um we had a, a large calling to make skate parks for other people we were running two skate parks ourselves and um we were quickly expanding. We were going to expand exponentially, probably do put up another six and then 12. Um, Whoa. So what was your, your first one was Carlsbad, right? Uh-huh. So Carlsbad, because everybody, everybody and their mama in the age of 50 and up knows about Carlsbad and right. how great Carlsbad was and what you guys did with that spot. Like it's the legendary skate spot. Right. So right after calls about it, it just so right before we even opened up the doors, there was a great demand for us to design places for other people, and we had you know high attendance at the skate park. So what was the other ones that were built that you that you and Jack are responsible for? We we consulted on the beginnings of all of them, the first generation, um, but uh, by the time we started. Um, really being productive we took in partners and started a bigger company okay um partner wow uh, that kind of threw me off a little i guess kind of threw me off so it wasn't after a while you guys had to pick up more people to right and i talked expand. i talked about them in our first episode um right you had the whole the pretty the rand corporation guys right right and we just lucked into um a couple of genius guys with the with the smarts and the dough to roll out a um a whole network of skate parks so how does a bunch of political nerds become skateboarders and skate park builders they um they were working at rand in the 60s rand was right on the beach in santa monica and um it just caught their imagination and um Tom Rockwell, I think, had a little money to invest, and he wanted to invest it in real estate. So he wanted to buy property, and and then you put up what you know, because the idea is to sell it in twenty years. Right. So um, you so you want to put up something that pays the rent, that pays your mortgage, and he thought that skate parks would be a nice, whimsical, and profitable thing to do. So he was just like, okay. I'm just going to have this hold up for a little bit and then I'm going to sell it. They, the seed was planted okay. during the 60s. And then when skateboarding really came around again, 
in the 70s, they were also in place and of a mind to roll out a bunch of skate parks. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit like, like Jack's story. Um, so you say it's funny. What's the funniest story he's told you? Like, because then you got this guy who's a genius. I mean, people have read right. the book, they would know that like he's one of the funniest guys. So this had to be like a whole experience of just crazy, just craziness going on. Because man, he's trying to do something that's never been done. So that's right. So, so Jack was a, a self-taught engineer, and um, he belonged to the, to the Iowa JCs, that's the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and um, they had their convention at a hotel that was also uh, hosting all the Miss American with all the Miss America contestants. And one thing led to another, and Jack wound up marrying one of them, like Miss Iowa or Miss Nebraska. Or, and um, he left for Alaska and started being a, like a salvage diver and a, a salvage operator, um, which is just ex- incredibly dangerous. And... Um, He's had a lot of he had a lot of dangerous episodes, but one of the funniest ones was um, because um, divers who use the old-fashioned scuba tanks um, were were dying in them because of what would happen is they would have to ditch their gear and then they couldn't because it was all strapped together, and Jack came up with a quick release that. Um, where, where, for where it all came together between your legs, and you could, and and you could quickly ditch your gear. So this is like a life-saving thing, and um, so he's he is in Alaska, and um, Jacques Cousteau's boat uh, comes in the Calypso comes into harbor in Alaska. Yeah. And now Jacques Cousteau is the guy that invented scuba gear, and. Um, so Jack walks over to the Calypso and says, you know, Captain Cousteau, I made this, you know, safety device. What do you think? And, um, and Cousteau loved it. But he said, unfortunately, Mr. Graham, we're going to go to backpacks next year. He goes, and the whole industry will follow us. And so this won't be needed. What a... But so he had, gone, but he had, uh, he had drawn it up and gotten a, uh, a machinist to make up a... Uh, a working model with springs, and it was a wonderful little gadget. He still had it. That's cool, though. I mean, because they put on those big, giant, lunky suits. Right. Like, yeah, you're going to drown. There's no way out of it. You can't just strip it off. Well, most people don't. But right, but if you're if you get if you get stuck or fouled up in your gear, it's bad. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a risky job. The, and um, so Jack eventually traded into into being a king crab fisherman, and um, he sold his boat and wanted to buy another boat. So he drove his family from Alaska to Miami. And a supermodel wife. What's that? Yeah, supermodel wife. Right. 
How do you hold on? How do you manage to get the the supermodel wife to be like, okay, baby, I'll come. I don't know. You must have a baby. I don't know. <laughs> I could never figure out how Jack. Yeah. Yeah. With the uh, with the Miss Americas. Um, <laughs> Though this sounds like there's more than one. No, there's just one. Okay, that's what I was like, damn, Jack. No, no, no. <laughs> Stay alive. I want to know this. Um. <laughs> and he so he bought a boat and outfitted to go fishing with uh, you know crab traps and everything uh, you know lops, uh, yeah crab traps he was a king crab fisherman crab traps and everything and he left Miami and he was still early for the crab season in uh, Alaska which I think is in the winter and um, so he decided to stop in Columbia and go lobster fishing yeah because it was lobster season. Now, Jack was nobody's fool, so I don't know what possessed him to do that, but, because that, you know, being, pulling into a Colombian port right, in, in the early 70s was just a, just a bad idea. I think anybody would have known that, but um, he arrived and he put his stuff in his, he put his, he got his gear off the boat and into storage because he was planning on staying for a little while. And then um, shortly after that, couple of polite Colombian gentlemen came a Colombian gentleman came and said you know we've got some work for you in the evenings and he's like oh, okay no thanks and um so he told his wife look we can pack up we got to get out of here but the um the gas stock wouldn't sell him gas he couldn't get provisions and he couldn't get uh fresh water and stuff like that and um so this went on for some time until he wasn't there. I'm not sure. But it went on for long enough where, like, food and their health was an issue. And um, fin finally, a, um, like, a big American pleasure yacht came into the harbor. And Jack went out and, and talked to the owner. And the owner took on a full tanks, full tanks of gas, filled up his tanks and gave them to Jack. And Jack got out of there. He got through the... Um, the Panama Canal and up and limped into San Diego, California. Yeah. And that's how he became my neighbor. Wow. All right. So California in the early 1970s was just heaven, especially in Encinitas. Hold on. You, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, as you're like, before you even got to California, like, what made you say, fuck this shit? Like, I'm going to California. Because you're a New Yorker. Like, you know, we're New Yorkers, man. We love our city. You're right, right. But I'm a surfer now, and I want to go and surf real waves and, um, and become part of that. And my resolve was really sort of galvanized when I was in that accident. I was in an accident and uh, rolled over and blown up in uh in a beer truck and narrowly escaped with my life and um when i finally jumped to safety when i landed in my head it just popped i'm going to california so it was really galvanized that i was going to do that at that time and you packed up your friends and said we're out of here and yes we uh we all packed up and moved to california what was that conversation like <laughs> well, most people were going. 
You know, uh-huh. most people were uh, all most of our a, a lot of our friends were moving to California. Uh, it was just a thing to do, um, and we did, and most of us stayed. Of course, I I moved back to to New York, but um, yeah, but you know, Encinitas, aside from being like this really hippie kind of a town, it had uh, a lot of really highly uh, talented craftspeople, especially when it comes to like uh, resins and polymers and stuff like that. These guys who uh, make surfboards are really kind of amateur scientists with this stuff. And um, so they are very good with, um, you know, with the urethane, the polymers and building the skate parks and uh, building skateboards, excuse me. So there was just a, an existing uh, bank of uh, um, like engineers, like homegrown engineers and, and stuff in a way that other towns might not have had. But you guys were like, it was almost like the, a Silicon Valley. It was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like a, what I call a hippie skunk works where all of these really smart uh, craftsmen banded together to get the thing done. But they were always like peace, love, and happiness. Enjoy, have a good time, and make really cool uh-huh. shit. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't more the uh, your corporate suit environment. No, no suits. You know, part part of the uh, the quick ascent when you know the market kicked in was that you know so the market is you know in the in the billions of dollars or a bill or a, a a big portion of a, a billion of a do- a dollars really right. quick. But it was only like, say, 20 or so manufacturers. Huh. So the money is probably similar to what it is now, but there was less people. This wasn't oversaturation. Yeah, there was less people Cause now with, we're... with a piece of the pie. So everybody made a lot of money. The money was crazy. Right. Everybody had great cars. Everybody had houses. It was really meteoric. Okay, compared to now where you have like 20 skateboard companies on a, on a single block yeah and maybe two make good quality right which and they'll be out of business in two years yeah because they make good quality but um Bain, fa- uh, Bain Bill Bain had his factory there in Encinitas and he was he made a, a surfboard fins he made fins unlimited he had a, a patent on the removable surfboard fins. So every genius. Oh yeah. It yeah. had it had been done before, but not in a reliable way. And Bain came up with it and he patented it. And geez, I think he still if you want to get like a, what they call a long box for like a, a, a surfboard, which a lot of surfboards have, I think you gotta buy one from Bain. <laughs> still. And um but he was a really brilliant engineer and he had been designing submarine parts for the, for the Navy in, um, in Point Loma doing classified work. And he started um, surfing and building surfboards and then he, he came up with the fin um, breakthrough. And when Frank Nasworthy realized that his urethane wheels had a market, he came to Bain so that he could um, expand 
powerfully and correctly, and they did. Yeah. How did Frank come into play? Like, where did he come from? Because he he had a huge impact on the whole sport. He just it seems like he was like the guy who popped up out of this like an alien that just came down and surfed and said, "Hey guys, I got this new shit for you guys. You're gonna love it. Check this out." Yeah, Frank didn't invent the urethane wheels, but he was the one that 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 found them and identified them and 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 found how well they worked. Um, the story goes, I believe, that Frank was dating somebody whose dad was a roller skate wheel salesman or something, and he had these wheels, and Frank tried them out, and that's how it started. So it's probably screwing around in the backyard or something. It's like, yo, yeah. dude, let's put these on the skateboard and see what happens. Well, um, no, Frank saw them and realized that, hey, this is something different. And he uh-huh. put them on his board and they work immediately. It was like when they put a sur- it was, it was like when they figured out that putting a fin on a surfboard made you be able to steer it. Okay. It was like adding the fin on a surfboard. Oh, you, oh, you guys were surfing and not be able to steer before? Uh, not us. Oh, but the but the original guys, they did, I don't know when they added the fin, but those original surfers, like from the forties and the fifties, <clears throat> those surfboards probably did not have fins. Excuse me. They um they steered them with their feet. Excuse me. Wow. So if you, you they would be easy to catch waves on because they were big and they were flat. So you'd catch a wave early, and you'd stand up, and then you would drag a foot on either side of the, the board to turn the board and plane. You're not, not going to be doing any hot dog and you're just going. Okay. And okay. standing. You're not climbing and dropping. And no stuff. cross steps, no, no, nothing really too pretty. Um, right, you're just hanging on for dear life. <laughs> like the original skateboard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the steel wheels. Yeah. yeah like, Te- good luck. Right, terribly dangerous. Yeah. Very much good luck. Um... We was about we was on the scene and Frank and Bane. Um, with that scene coming and developing. Right. So Encinitas became like an epicenter of this because um Bain's factory was churning out the wheels. Uh the the folks that worked there started using them and their friends and their kids' friends and, and you know. Um so it just became really prolific, really quick. Um, and Warren lived there, and Warren started to see all these kids around on wheels and stuff like that, and he started to take photos of them. And then he started to realize the potential, and then he started to compose really iconic photos. Mm. And that's how the magazine was started. Because Warren saw these kids skating around town and realized that he could make it look. So, what was it like skating? So, I know you're pretty much a hard, you're a hardcore skater surfer. What was it like skating with uh, the likes of uh, Peggy and and, and Tony Alva? Because you're competing with some of the best in the world. And... Yeah. Um, well, those guys already had a reputation as being just a really great crew of skaters. And, um, so when they came down, we were always looking forward to seeing them. And okay. when like and Tony came down all the time. I mean, he lived at the Logan's house for okay. for months. Um, 
Would you guys like call each other up and be like, "Hey, you're in town. Let's have a sesh." Like yeah. Random. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that would probably be uh, organized by Brian Logan or something. Okay. But um, but it was mostly going to La Costa and racing on Sunday, oh. and also that's where business would be done. So you'd want to come down and race and hang, but you'd want to run into uh, the manufacturers and get sponsorships. Okay. So like. Um, you know, road rider representative would be there, and Tracker and GNS and Hobie. They you could, if you were good, and a team was looking for somebody, you'd be able to get on if you showed up at La Costa and turned and could prove that you skated well. I had to be hundreds of kids. No, not hundreds. All right. So the Sunday races were like a real happening, whether you're going to race or not. Solemn race, you you came. A lot of the freestylers came, and they would be on the weekends. They would have a practice at the factory. That's for the GNS guys and for the Bain guys, and then they would show up at the hill. So everybody was already warmed up and ready to go by the time they got there, and the the freestylers would be just putting on a show of all their own. They would get together, they would congregate, and they would show each other tricks. And uh, it was a cool thing. And, but the tracker guys would be there, GNS, Turner, all these guys. And that's where business was done. If you wanted to get a wheel sponsorship, a truck sponsorship, mm -hmm. a, a you would go there. And that's, that's where business was done. So I was like, pretty much before, because now with the internet, anybody can put out their. Get get a sponsorship yeah. just by putting something on the internet. Yeah, you, you had to come to the hill. Well, now I can't even say anybody can put a good sponsorship. Now it's a look. Like you have, if you right. have a certain look, you can get a sponsorship. It's not come to the spot, come skate the spot, and we'll decide. But we had we had the place to ourselves for about four years. It was really kind of idyllic, and we did it every Sunday. I don't so think we missed a Sunday. How did it change? What well, what changed after the four years was up? The mar the market. The market, the skateboard market, um, dipped. Mm. It was um, what I call the crash of '79, and um, all of those just really stratospheric gains in uh, market share and sales. They they topped out and they turned the other direction, and in the end, I think. Why do you think it happened? It was just saturation. It was market saturation. Um, I, I think, you know, we're talking about, you know what it's like when you're skateboarding. Usually you start skateboarding as a kid, and by the time you're like 18 or 19, 20, you know, you, you fall and you don't get up as quick, and you have a girlfriend, and it just tapers. The story. Right. The story most people, most people quit skateboarding because yeah. they get a girlfriend. That's the common thing that happens in the community. Like, once you get a girlfriend, you get a car. Yeah. Like, it's over. Like, you're not skating anymore. I, I've noticed that myself. It's like, I get a girlfriend. I'm not skating as much. I'm not going outside. Most of the time I'm spent with her. But, but La Costa is where it all started. Uh, yeah. What was up with La Costa, though? That situation. It was a development that... Um, 
the, the mafia had paid for and, and put up and were expecting to build houses. So they built the streets and the sidewalks and put in the street lights. And then the recession came and nobody was buying any of that stuff. So we had it untouched for all those years and it was uh, it was great. How'd you keep the gambling secret from the mob? Like uh, that of all, of all things, I kept the gambling it's secret funny. from the mob. It was never it never needed to be kept secret. Um, okay. No, you know, it's just a bunch of guys putting money in the pot and seeing who wins at the end of a sun, of, of a Sunday afternoon. It's not like you know we're running numbers or something. I get you. I get you. I mean, I I would assume they'd be like, hey, there's money involved in this. You're using our hill. Right. Like, hey. where's our cut? Hey. Yeah, it never, came, <laughs> it, never, it never came to that. But I remember La Costa was the first time I saw and met Warren Bolster. And, he, you know, even in 1975, he had been a, a staff photographer. He was on staff at Surfer Magazine, and it was just like, wow, wait a second. He's actually here? He's actually right there. Mm-hmm. Wait, and he wants to talk to us. It's just, and it was just like, wait a second. <laughs> this was like, what does he want with me? This was like Jesus. I mean, he was the he. He was an artist and a poet and God. So, um, and it, a lot of um, Warren would go to La Costa on the weekends and it, when he saw something he liked and this is usually freestyle or racing or something like that mm-hmm. he would make he would he would make an appointment to work one on one with you during you know during the week on a Tuesday or something like that wow. like no, no, when no one was around yeah he would be looking for a certain thing he'd see you doing something and he would say okay and then in his mind he would have a location um, the time of the day, where the sun would be, how the, how the shadows would fall, what the colors would be like. He would already have it composed in his head. And all you had to do was show up and do your nose wheelie or your power slide. And you're, you've been composed into a beautifully... What was it like shooting with Warren? Because I know you've experienced it. You... Um, was it like, you like all right, go do your thing. I'll be over here. I'll catch you. No. It would be like, okay... We're here for one particular shot. It's a kick turn at this part of the bowl on, on this particular time of day. So um, he knew that you know the, the light would be in back of you. And if he flashed you from the front, you would, it would have this great effect of you know, like an aura around you and, your fi- and all your features would be lit up. And it, so he, he would take a nothing event, like a little kick turn, on a little tiny bank turn and turn it into the most magnificent photo. Yeah, we have some one, legendary photos. One can imagine. There's some legendary photos from Warren Wilster where it's it's not really that much of a difficult trick. It's not that hard. Like that. That, that's that's, <laughs> that particular photo. That's what we're talking about. It's a about. simple kick turn. It's a, no, like, it's a nothing kick turn by a pretty girl. Wow, it looks so cool. It does look cool. And it's the most important thing in the world. You know, he just... So we're looking at a photo of Lord, uh, Lord Thornhill doing a, a kick turn on a little tiny ball with the, with the sun going down behind her. And the whole thing is just poetic. 
and, and angelic. Right, it's a profile pic in today's world. That would be somebody's profile picture. She would posted that on her Instagram and she I was born in I, I might make it my profile picture. Nice. Nice.